Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization. I'm Lindsay Lingholz, Director of Policy and Program at ACS. On today's episode, we're going to continue our look at consequential decisions to come from the Supreme Court this term, and we'll turn our attention to an opinion issued on the penultimate day of the term, Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta. This decision will have major implications for tribal sovereignty and jurisdiction going forward. Typically in these introductions, I try to briefly sum up the stakes of the case or topic we're looking at. And today I'm going to borrow a description because everything I drafted paled in comparison. We are joined today by Professor Maggie Blackhawk, who commented when the decision was released that the court acted against hundreds of years of congressional action, against solid SCOTUS precedent, and hundreds of years of history in what she describes as a devastating result for our democracy. Professor Blackhawk is a professor of law at NYU Law and an award-winning interdisciplinary scholar and teacher of constitutional law, federal Indian law, and legislation. Her first book project, forthcoming from Harvard University Press, highlights the centrality of Native nations, Native peoples, and American colonialism to the constitutional law and constitutional history of the United States. Professor Blackhawk, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you so much for having me. Before we dig into this case and and the context around this case, I'd love to lay a little bit of groundwork for those who are listening on the legal structures involved when we talk about tribal sovereignty. So would you mind explaining a little bit, how does Indian law interact with federal law and state law? Of course. So Indian law, just to be clear, is itself federal law. When we talk about laws that are made by Native people, We call that tribal law. It's made by tribal governments. So Indian law, and in that the the those are the laws that regulate the relationship between the United States and Native nations, the over 500 federally recognized Native nations within the borders of the United States, as well as Alaska and to some extent Hawaii. That's all federal law. And under our constitutional framework, it has long excluded state law. So just like all of our other foreign affairs powers, those powers have been lodged in the national government constitutionally. And it excluded state jurisdiction from Indian country for hundreds of years in a variety of forms. And not just under federal action, the constitutional framework, but also even, for example, When the states came into the union, those statutes that brought them into the union actually excluded state jurisdiction from Indian country at that time. So it's the body of federal Indian laws is always separate from state law. Perfect. You know, in reading this case, I couldn't help. Well, not even I could. The the court took note that this is obviously a case that arose in the wake of a decision from the 2020 term, McGirt versus Oklahoma. Could we start with that decision first, actually, as I think it provides some context for not only the procedural history in this case, but also the court's posture towards tribal sovereignty in recent years? What was at issue in McGirt and what did the court hold? Yes. So in McGirt v. Oklahoma, the question before the Supreme Court was whether or not Congress had diminished the reservation borders of the Muscogee Creek Nation that were set by treaty in the 19th century. And there, in 2020, the Supreme Court looked at all the history and congressional action and said, no, Congress has not acted to diminish those borders. And Congress is the only branch, along with the president, the, the court doesn't have unilateral power to change treaties. 
And so the court held that the borders of the Muscogee Creek Nation that were set by that 19th century treaty were still the same borders that existed in the 19th century treaty. The result of that was that in the short term, it meant that large swaths of the city of Tulsa existed within the Muscogee Creek Nation reservation. And since there are other Native nations within the borders of Oklahoma that have treaties that are similar to the Muscogee Creek Nation, it meant that one half to two thirds of Oklahoma could exist within those reservation borders of those other Native nations. What that means on the ground is that, as we were just discussing, state jurisdiction, Oklahoma's jurisdiction is excluded in those areas in certain ways. And so the the court held firm to the treaty law of the 19th century, of it held firm to the separation of powers that drove that decision. And it said that the city of Tulsa was in part within the Muscogee Creek Nation. I'm wondering what the impact of that decision has been on other lawsuits. Obviously, this is one that came out of the wake of that decision, but there have been many others. What impact has that had on both tribal courts and also U.S. federal courts? So both the the federal courts and tribal courts had to ramp up very quickly because the state of Oklahoma, as the court recognized in McGirt, uh, had been behaving as though it had jurisdiction in these areas, despite the fact that federal law said otherwise. Oklahoma had been breaking that law for a very long time. And so the federal courts and the tribal courts had to ramp up to be able to handle the transfer of cases that were already in the state system and to handle the new cases coming in. Uh, But they were able to do that. And they've been working very hard over the last two years to do that, as well as all of the Native nations in Oklahoma have sat down with the government of Oklahoma to try and negotiate, as they have in, in many other areas, compacts and agreements to be able to move forward after the McGirt decision was released uh, with the thought that as soon as they came to an agreement, Congress would be able to sign off on it because it has the power to set the meets and bounds of these relationships. And instead of sitting down with those Native nations, the state of Oklahoma, its government stood up and decided to file a massive number of petitions for cert to the Supreme Court to try and overturn McGirt after the court changed composition. And the Castro Huerta case was one of those cases, right? It was, yes. They were, there were a slew of them. All of the petitions tried to ask the court to take up the question specifically of should the court overrule McGirt v. Oklahoma. And then they all, or many of them, had these additional sort of anchor questions of it was a narrow kind of one-off question of retroactivity. And then also in Castro Huerta, there was the narrow question of, is there concurrent state jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction in this narrow context? And so many of us looking at all of these petitions really just saw the second questions as fig leaves for trying to get the petition for cert granted and to give the court cover for taking up a question of overruling its precedent that was only two years old. And that was really motivated by the change in composition of the court because it was a 5-4 decision then with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the majority. 
Right. And then fast forward two years later and we have Justice Connie Baird on the court and all of a sudden the math is different. Which it, Yes. And, which, and no yeah. one wants to write their petition. The math is different. Can you please grant <laughs> our, our petition for cert and overrule this case? And so all of us looking at these petitions really saw these secondary questions as fig leaf questions, many of them very, very well settled within the the field and sort of strange for, for anyone to raise before the court and very strange for the court to grant cert on. It's been a theme of this term. You know, we, we've mm-hmm. been doing a number of episodes looking at other cases to come out and, and it seems that the court was just in search of the, the issues that they wanted to, to take up. So we'll, we'll fast forward two years. Uh, so at the end of this June, the court took the offer from Oklahoma and not only granted cert in this case, but released an opinion. And so um, would love to hear just a little bit of a breakdown of just the basics. So who wrote the majority? What did it hold? And then who was in the dissent? So backing up just a little bit, just to make yeah. sure with the framing question, yes. the court declined to grant cert on the question of whether or not it should overrule McGirt v. Oklahoma. So it actually declined that question, and it took up only the secondary question in Castro Huerta, whether or not states have concurrent jurisdiction within Indian country over crimes committed by non-Indians against Indians. It, It sounds awfully complex and narrow because it actually is. But the court granted cert on that very, very narrow question and issued its opinion holding that the state of Oklahoma did have concurrent jurisdiction within Indian country, criminal jurisdiction over crimes committed by non-Indians against Indians. And it was Justice Kavanaugh joined by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and Justice Barrett in the majority with Kavanaugh as the author. And Justice Gorsuch filed a dissent joined by Justice Breyers, Sotomayor, and Kagan. I'm curious, you know, so it's maybe a minor win (laughs) in the sense that they didn't take up the full opportunity to review McGirt. Where is the tension there now? So McGirt is still good law. They had this narrow holding here. Where's the tension when it comes to tribal sovereignty? So I think there's a huge win in the fact that the Supreme Court did not take up the, the question of whether or not it should overrule McGirt v. Oklahoma, because it certainly could. And seeing now the composition of the court, it certainly could have overturned it just a few years later. But I think it says something important about where the court is headed in the sense that there, you know, we've, we've seen in this term, the court essentially going off the rails in many areas and throwing precedent and legal reasoning, history, tradition, originalism, anything that it can out the window. But we did see a little bit of judicial moderation in this instance, where at the very least, the court isn't going to take up two-year-old precedent just because of a shift in the court and overrule it two years later because they're concerned about the consequences of that decision. That said, that win, of course, was heavily tempered by not only the decision here, because in reality, Castro Huerta, the, the actual implications on the ground are tiny. So the win for Oklahoma, Oklahoma spent a lot of money on a PR campaign, on hiring very expensive Supreme Court practitioners, on hiring consultants to to be able to frame the case. It, It spent a lot of money because it really wanted McGirt to be overruled. And it didn't spend a lot of money so it could have 
concurrent jurisdiction over crimes committed by non-Indians against Indians within Indian country. That wasn't a very good investment of taxpayer dollars from Oklahoma. Because in reality, the, before Castro Huerta, Oklahoma had concurrent jurisdiction or had jurisdiction over crimes committed by non-Indians against non-Indians within Indian country. So now the subset, it's not as though the state had no criminal jurisdiction before. Right. Um, it really is just expanded into this tiny additional subset of crimes where if the victim is also um, Indian or Native American, then the state has concurrent jurisdiction to the federal government and the tribes. So that's that's a tiny result in the world. The concern about Castro Huerta isn't so much its own result, but is instead a concern as twofold. One is about the future of American constitutional democracy and the role of the court, because the reasoning and the structure of the opinion and the, the result that the court reached was distressing when the court is operating as a court. It's supposed to be limited by the rule of law is supposed to be limited by the constitution, it's supposed to be limited by history and, and legal argument, um, precedent, its own precedent. And it disregarded all of that to reach its decision. I think the, the end of the term, many have been lamenting the court turning to this test of history and tradition. And, and many have said, well, this is just an originalist form of interpretation. I can assure everyone that the court has thrown that out as well. If you look yeah. at Castro Huerta, history, tradition, and originalism have also been thrown out. And this is with Justice Thomas and the majority. It's Justice Gorsuch is the only one holding on. And it, I think there's more at work on his side than his interpretive method. So it's a worry about the court and what the court is willing to do. And then the second concern flows from that. And that what Castro Huerta really signals to Indian country is that the Supreme Court is willing to do anything, even usurp the power of Congress, go against what state governments have done for the last 200 years, what Congress has done for the last 200 years, its own constitutional tradition, history, and founding documents, beliefs, values, and the, the law at the, at the time of its drafting and ratification, it will throw out everything to reach the decisions that it believes the law should be. So it is now the super legislature of the United States and not bound by anything. And that's worrisome for Indian country uh, because <laughs> that means it will, you know, the as Justice Kavanaugh's majority opinion states that Indian country is really just part of state states. They are mm -hmm. just part of states, which is, there's no citation there because there is no citation except for Justice Kavanaugh's opinion. Just himself. vibes. Just, just vibes. Exactly. Just no law, vibes. just vibes. <laughs> yes. No law, no history, no constitution, no legal reasoning, no precedent, just vibes. Um, and this was, again, the, the question that the court addressed here. It's, it's hard to convey how settled this was and how silly this case was and how terrifying that the court went in the direction it went. Because it for advocates, for people who are looking at the court, for even for law professors, for folks who you know, respect the law, for lawyers, it, it's worrisome to see the institution that's supposed to be there to interpret and apply the law completely and utterly disregarding it. I, there's no other way to frame this case. Like the strangeness of it, I, the, the little tidbit I like to share is that you know Congress has for the last 200 years regulated and said when and how state governments could have jurisdiction, literally, 
and I'm quoting here, over crimes committed by and against Indians. And it said that the, the states can have the, that jurisdiction sometimes. And that Oklahoma, for example, even today under the framework that Congress has set up could opt into that jurisdiction, but Congress, uh, but Oklahoma has chosen not to. It has not stepped into that legal framework. It hasn't adopted that jurisdiction. And so because it hasn't, other states also haven't. They've also taken it up and given it back. But Congress was supposed to be able to set the terms of when state governments have that jurisdiction. And the court just disregarded that framework that currently exists. There are laws on the books created by Congress that say to to have jurisdiction over crimes against Indian states, you have to do X. And the Supreme Court just went, no, they just have jurisdiction. (laughs) Uh, Everybody, all of the states, even the states who have tried to give it back. Even the states who have not, the states that have not adopted it. (laughs) And the Supreme Court just went, no, you know, it was, it was astounding to me and continues to be astounding to me. Um, At oral argument, even Justice Kagan responded to the attorney for the state of Oklahoma and said, you can't argue from precedent anymore because all of the cases that you've cited from this court, we have explicitly disagreed with you. The Supreme Court has said So not just Congress, but the Supreme Court has said over and over and over that states do not have jurisdiction over crimes against Indians. And again, the Supreme Court looked at that, all of its own cases, and said, no, no, you you have jurisdiction here. And there's no way to square that. Oh, it's uh, really. terrifying. <laughs> it's truly, as you you referenced, the court is super legislature earlier. And it's interesting in this particular case that they are going against actual legislatures at every level. Every level. Um, to, every to single so. legislature. Yeah. The yeah. state of Iowa, for example, just tried to give jurisdiction back, has been just retroceded it to the federal government through its own it passed resolutions. The Iowa legislature said, please, we don't want this jurisdiction over, over crimes against Indians within Indians country anymore. And they just gave it back. And now the Supreme Court gave it back to them. It didn't even ask for it. (laughs) It tried to get rid of it. Well, and now they're stuck trying to deal with the the fallout, right? So now Iowa has to navigate a world it was not not hoping to do so. And it doesn't Um, get funds to to do that. It's not like it's bargaining with the federal government and saying, sure, we will adopt this additional jurisdiction if you give us money for the policing that we're going to do and for the additional investigation that we're going to do. And instead, it's a it's an unfunded national mandate by judicial fiat of state jurisdiction. It's wild. I'm I'm a little bit lost for words, just trying to to find a way to get my head around that. You know, in Gorsuch's dissent, he made the same point that you've you've made so well that you know for 200 years the court respected this balance, right? That Native American tribes retain their sovereignty unless Congress ordains otherwise. Other than this particular instance of of jurisdiction over criminal acts, how does this decision undermine that foundation? Is, Is this something that you think is going to expand to other areas of the law, particularly where, you know, Indian law is interacting with state law? Yes. So it it definitely will expand because Justice Kavanaugh's reasoning was so sweeping. And there's, there's, you know, quite a bit of really unsupported, broad ranging dicta in the opinion that is unnerving and will empower state governments to do all sorts of things that they, that they shouldn't do. One thing to note though, and I, I say this as a scholar and less as an advocate, but Justice Gorsuch's claim 
in the dissent that the court has respected that foundational mm-hmm. rule for 200 years isn't exactly correct. They're Maybe a the little last, generous. <laughs> a little generous. Exactly. Right. So um, the court has on and off for 200 years done that. But for the last 50 years, in a line of doctrine that started with a case in the late 1970s called Oliphant, the Supreme Court has again and again looked at what Congress has done and said, we can't really figure that out, but we don't think tribes should have jurisdiction here. So we're just going to decide that. And they've done that more in the context of of tribal sovereignty. And so, of course, you know, there isn't the same uproar because who cares about tribal governments? Many people don't even know that they exist anymore. Even though, you know, if you look at the reality of it, many tribal governments govern land masses that are larger than several states. So there is a concern there. But the fact that the Supreme Court has been doing this for 50 plus years now is important and should be reflected on. And especially from a separation of powers level of this is just an area where the Supreme Court is kind of leaning back into its own role of usurping the power of Congress, which it has done, frankly, in many other areas, even when it comes to constitutional law, when it comes to federal Indian law, when it comes to review of statutes, administrative law, it really is building its own power over the same time Mm -hmm. period. And so that's something that we can't lose, of course, in also reflecting on the fact that there is this foundational rule that was set by the constitutional framework that there's a recognition of tribal sovereignty that clears out state jurisdiction unless and until Congress does something. Both of those things are true. (laughs) And we we can reflect on both of them. But the concern, of course, is that now... Not only is the Supreme Court trying to cover up the fact that it's deciding things for Congress, what you see in Castro Huerta is the court trying to build a constitutional basis for usurping the power of Congress. It's trying to say, it's trying to justify its own role in doing that. So rather than what we saw over the last 50 years, which is at least the court saying, well, this is Congress's role. This is really Congress, 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 but we're just going to, you know, tinker with it here and cover up the fact that we're tinkering with it. In Castro Huerta, you start to see the beginning of Justice Kavanaugh trying to say, no, the Constitution says this. And the moment Mm -hmm. the court says the Constitution says this, it should set off alarm bells that it's the court trying to usurp the power of the other branches, which frankly, have a role in the constitutional framework as well as interpreting and making and thinking about constitutional law. And the court has taken it away from them. And so it's, it's, it really is just sort of a signaling of the Supreme Court saying, this is a space where we are essentially an imperial power within our separation of powers, and we're going to start to take over. And so you see that in Castro Huerta in a way that we haven't seen in the last 50 years. So it's much more disconcerting. It's been a common theme from this term of just kind of this raw exercise of power. The mask is off and this is where we're headed. You know, the decision was 5-4 and casual followers of the court might be surprised to hear that not only was Justice Gorsuch in the minority in the dissent, but he wrote for the dissent. And I'm curious, you know, is this surprising to you? He obviously took the pen in McGirt as well. And so um, this is obviously an area of interest to him. But was it surprising to you that he he came down in this way in this case? No, not, not a surprise at all. Over the last few years since his appointment to the court, Justice Gorsuch has been 
a very competent and sometimes impassioned advocate for tribal sovereignty. And he has begun to articulate some of the values at stake Mm -hmm. in these cases in a way that no other justice has before. And that includes the liberal wing of the court, which has long been unpredictable in these areas. So for example, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Souter, Justice Stevens, uh, even Justice Breyer, all of them unpredictable at different points on these cases. Justice Gorsuch has really shown us what it looks like for a justice to understand the law in this area, to respect it, and to start to grapple with some of the bigger values and, and issues at stake for constitutional democracy in these contexts. It seems like an area where it it defies a little bit of the traditional breakdown and also is an area where the progressive justices or the liberal justices could improve everywhere from not only the decisions, but also in their clerk hiring and their just the way that they approach this area of the law as something that's more foundational as opposed to kind of extraneous and, and on the side. Yes. Scholars of federal Indian law and historians of the court have reflected on how the justices used to call these like peewee cases and there were Mm -hmm. expletives involved in referring to federal Indian law cases and never really took it seriously. Some Supreme Court practitioners joke that the court just never really read the briefs in federal Mm -hmm. Indian law cases and came to it without any background. And you can see some of the foundational questions coming up in oral argument, even this term, for example, and as Leda Dulcer, the court, some of the justices started asking about where the canons of construction around Indian law came from and whether or not they should retain them. So it's it really is because they don't understand the area of law, they, it's sort of a no holds barred approach to it of, oh, let's just rethink it because we don't understand it or have any any preconceived set notion of what's going on here. But it, it, it's totally unpredictable when it comes to political appointment, the, the political party of the appointment and appointing justice. It really is just a ideology, interpretive methodologies. Like you, we can't predict anything around what the justices will do. And frankly, even the cases that came out this term, Isleta del Sur and then Dinez P., they were similarly unpredictable because one, the first one, Dinez P., for example, Justice Gorsuch and Kagan and Sotomayor were in the dissent there, whereas Justice Barrett authored the majority opinion, which was the side that the tribes briefed. So the tribes, tribe, tribal sovereignty won in Denespe with the conser- so-called conservative wing of the court plus Breyer, authored by Justice Barrett just a few weeks before Castro Huerta. And then two days later, the Supreme Court issued, uh, released Isleta del Sur, which was a 5-4 opinion with Barrett joining the same dissenters that you see in Castro Huerta. There, again, so the tribe wins, um, but the composition is entirely different. And yeah. then you see in Castro Huerta how Barrett just essentially, it was, it was she, she swung. And so that was why we ended up with a different composition in, in Castro Huerta. Even though, frankly, the reasoning in Isleta del Sur should have, that she signed on to, should have carried over into Castro Huerta. So if she is sticking to her guns of what she signed on to, she didn't write separately to only join part of the opinion. She didn't write separately to explain her distinctive reasoning that somehow distinguishes the two cases. 
but she signed on to one in the majority and then swung over, signed on for the opinion against the tribes, which changed the, the decision in Castro Huerta. She was the deciding vote for the most part. And so it's, again, even this term, it's difficult to predict where folks will come out because the questions around American colonialism, the questions around Indian country, it's not like you know, the original sin of human enslavement, where we've really thought through it as a country where we have at least, you know, some beginning of reckoning with these areas, folks really have no language, they have no presuppositions, they have, they don't even have the fundamentals to be able to think and talk about these issues. So they're getting very much worked out on the fly. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. ACS is a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization committed to protecting our democratic legitimacy and supporting laws and legal systems that improve the lives of all people. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. Our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By joining ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, our advocacy in support of Supreme Court reform, and truth, racial healing, and transformation. Information, and so much more. You also become a member of our nationwide network, which includes over 250 student and lawyer chapters. Join ACS and the progressive legal movement today by visiting our website at acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. For folks who maybe are less familiar, would you mind just giving briefly the holdings of those other cases that you referenced, just so that if folks are interested, they can go back and learn a little bit more on those too? Sure. Yeah, they're they're really complicated in their outcomes, but I'll <laughs> yeah. give like a, a very probably. I, I don't mean to set you up for a difficult task. No, 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 not <laughs> at all. So Denespi was a case that dealt with whether or not there was double jeopardy in a certain kind of court within Indian country. So a, a so-called CFR court, and whether or not that court was so federal in its nature that uh, the the double jeopardy that doesn't normally adhere when you're dealing with a tribal court versus a federal court would actually get triggered in that other context because there was so much of a federal presence that double jeopardy would necessarily be invoked because it was federal government, federal government. And there, the court held that double jeopardy was not triggered and did not apply to the CFR courts, that they weren't necessarily tribal courts, but they were applying tribal law. So it was incredibly sovereignty reinforcing. And if you look at that opinion, Justice Barrett really goes knee deep into the idea that there is a separate vision of tribal law and tribal sovereignty that was getting applied that didn't change based on potentially the character of the court and the fact that there was so much federal oversight of these courts. Okay, that was way too long. So I'll no, do a shorter one with Isleta. Isleta Dulcer was a statutory interpretation case about whether or not the, it was the, sadly, it was really one about, everyone remembers the bingo machines. They went knee deep into questions of bingo machines. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they held there that uh, for the tribes, essentially, that the, the interpretation that they were putting forward of the statute was the right one and that state law did not govern. And in that particular case. And so I, I want to highlight that, you know, while McGirt and Castro Huerta are cases that arose in, in a criminal context, it is certainly not the only area of the law that intersects in this way, that, that creates questions of tribal sovereignty and that the court really has to take a, a, a system of law and, and really 
understand it, understand the way that it functions, and then also the underlying facts of the case. And so it sounds like maybe they're doing a not great job at times on both of those fronts, but but it requires them to understand the way that these, these systems of law interact. Yes. And they, they don't understand how the systems of law interact. And they also just don't understand the issues on the ground and the values at stake and the history behind all of it. And so it's, it's a little unnerving to see the questions of first principles so much on the table because they're, you know, nothing settled when you don't understand something at all. You know, you walk into econ 101 and you question all the presuppositions. It's the hardest thing to teach is the foundational courses and in areas because you end up having to create these frameworks of understanding. And when you don't have that framework, it's a no holds barred. I could just do anything here. (laughs) And that's what the Supreme Court has done over and over. And sadly, that's what Justice Kavanaugh is looking like the court is willing to do. And it's starting to gesture towards trying to really push back on the Congress. To date, Congress has been able to pass statutes to correct the Supreme Court when it has gone too far and taking away things like tribal sovereignty. So that line of cases, the Congress has been in conversation with the court saying, okay, no, you've gone too far. Here's a statute. We're recognizing tribal sovereignty in an area where you just tried to take it away. We never took it away here. And so that dynamic has been happening for the last 50 years, but you see in Castro Huerta where the court is saying, well, maybe this is constitutional because if this is constitutional, you can start to see how that's the court setting itself up to where the Congress can't override it. And really undermining kind of the democratic underpinnings of this <laughs> yes. entire system, right? It, it, it completely strips folks from being able to to have that conversation with the court, whether through, you know, at the ballot box or through the representatives, it, it, it sets themselves up completely out of the conversation in a conversation they don't understand. And they can't predict either, right. you know, the world of legal reasoning, the, the, you know, part of the reason that we have analogical reasoning and precedent is predictability yeah. of being able to have a world where people can go, okay, I can at least understand what the law is, where Congress can make laws understanding what they believe, what the law is with Within this other framework, because all laws interrelated. And so if the presumptions are shifting, which the court is now willing to do to just change the law and change all of that framework after the fact, how are we ever able to have a society where there are rules? I mean, that's why we have the rule of law is, you know, not just to have the democratic accountability on one side, but to have the predictability and the stability on the other side. And what do legal advocates do? You know, there's a case before the court now where I just, you know, part of me wanted to file a brief that just said, you know, this isn't a court. Um, <laughs> and, and just, I don't know what to, I don't know what to write to you court, yeah. because I'm not sure how to, how to address cases before this institution right now. And of course I lean back into, I'm going to at least play my role properly and model that. So hopefully the court can be reminded of its institutional role, but it, it was a, it was a tough slog, honestly, Yeah, <laughs> right to it and go, I, I don't know if I can file anything. Why am I doing this? <laughs> well, in, in, in that, I think speaks to the moment the court finds itself in right now, which is one where it, with waning credibility and, and because they've been chipping away at these absolute basic sense of rule of law, of precedent, of just, as you mentioned, the predictability. People have built their lives. Systems of government have been built around these rulings. And so to just 
go on pure vibes is um, really undermining their credibility in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah. Especially in the criminal context. I mean, yeah. it was oh, the, yes. the test that they applied because they've, they've done this in the civil context where they've reached further and further. They just decide when they want to, whether a state law, a state civil law applies within Indian country through a test called Bracker balancing, which is basically just, it's all vibes. There's some structure to it at least, but here the court drew that into for the first time into the criminal context. So we can imagine criminal context where the court gets to decide on vibes, whether or not after the fact a criminal law applies to a particular jurisdiction, that doesn't sound like criminal law to me. That sounds like it's an unconstitutional framework where we are criminalizing actions after the fact. That is not the way I see our legal system working. And the court had to dance around that by saying all criminal laws apply in all states. And no, this is really sweeping, even though we're applying this test that in the past we've only done law by law. But again, it's it's not even applying its own rules properly. It's it's applying uh, rules that apply in other contexts and then making them up so they will fit and not cause constitutional problems in this other area. So it, it belies all function of a court yeah. to go as far as the court went in this particular case and to behave as it behaved. It, I believe it will go down if folks notice it at all. It, this this reasoning, this opinion should go down as an incredibly dark day for the Supreme Court and and the way that it operates. Well, I hate to even ask the next question, but I, I, I need to. <laughs> a darker to. day. <laughs> well, right. So, so looking at the horizon um, and the clouds that are forming, um, you know, the court has taken up a case next term that also is right in line with the questions we've been discussing. Can you give us a preview of Brekeen versus Holland? Yes. So in Brekeen versus Holland, it is a constitutional challenge to a statute passed by Congress called the Indian Child Welfare Act that was passed in the late 1970s. So again, another late 1970s resurgence. And the, the statute is one that governs where Native children will be placed and how they will be treated in the foster and adoptive care system, including by state courts in those proceedings, but also by state welfare agencies. And it also strengthens the power of tribal governments to be able to to have jurisdiction over their own children. So the challenges that are are many, so many, um, but the big ones are the that the Indian Child Welfare Act is unconstitutional race-based legislation that was passed without a compelling purpose and thus is discriminatory. And the other one is that the ICWA unconstitutionally commandeers the states to do things. I want to give a little bit of context for folks who may be unfamiliar with ICWA or or the, the history behind it, but there is a long history of of there being disputes over the the ways in which Native children are placed outside of Native communities. And so I don't mean to ask you to go through all that history, but maybe just a, a little bit about why in particular this set of issues is so foundational for folks in Indian country and, and, and trying to preserve culture and, and history and tradition. So the Indian Child Welfare Act is deeply important to Indian country for all sorts of reasons, but it was also deeply important to Congress when it was passed in the late 1970s. And that is because 
not in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, in the decades leading up to the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act, 25 to 35% of Native children nationwide were separated from their parents and their families, either temporarily or permanently. And that means hundreds of thousands of children uh, removed by state governments during that time frame. And so the Indian Child Welfare Act was an effort to claw back that policy because the federal government at the beginning of that process had realized that its boarding school policy, also a separation policy, was problematic. And we've heard about the federal boarding schools for Native children. There's a wonderful effort now to bring light to that by Deb Holland and her work around putting together a commission and and report around boarding schools within the United States. History is well documented. But the history that we don't hear much about is the fact that at the end of that process, in the 20th century, the federal government thought to itself, okay, let's try and solve this by conferring jurisdiction to state governments. They're the places of local control, the best overseers of the best interest of children. Let's give them the jurisdiction. And state governments refused initially. They said we couldn't afford it. These are poor communities. We don't want these communities to be within our welfare system. Of course, this is right after the Great Depression. You know, this is the, 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 and you have the complexities where states couldn't tax the land of Native people. And so they couldn't find the tax revenues to subsidize this additional jurisdiction to fund welfare programs for impoverished communities. So they instead lobbied the federal government for subsidies, small subsidies for foster care. Because it's much cheaper, and you see even the state governments arguing this, it's much cheaper for state governments to put poor children in middle-class homes and give a little bit of a subsidy than to have enough subsidy to support a poor family and to keep children in that environment properly and to give them enough subsidy to be able to get by. And so it was really a bottom line problem. And that was the policy that the federal government essentially supported by subsidizing it for decades. They thought that was going to be the best solution. And the Indian Child Welfare Act was an effort to claw that back. It was an effort to say no. That removal of hundreds of thousands of of Native children, of 25 to 35% of Native children, is not the way that we want to go. So we're going to set a different standard for state courts, for state welfare agencies, who had had tried to put forward their standards to the federal government before. And the federal government had approved those standards through its contracting process. And so you have this relationship. And ICWA was just a reversal of that. And so to call it now unconstitutional race-based legislation, to call it commandeering, is really unusual in response to that broader history. And it completely ignores it. No one who's briefed the case has really gone in depth into where ICWA came from. Um, In the state of Texas, the petitioners, they completely ignore the fact that the state governments have done this and they instead want to have no restrictions on state governments moving forward, despite the fact that just a few decades ago, state governments were incredibly complicit in the removal of Native children. You know, advocates were really hopeful that the court would not take up this case. Um, (laughs) And so, uh, unfortunately, you know, they have. And so I'm curious if if you would be willing to explain why. Why is this case in particular cause such alarm? 
Well, so the Fifth Circuit took this on bonk and issued an over 300 page opinion, right? And it was incredibly fractured and a complete mess. And that was really when folks, I think, realized that the Supreme Court might take this up to clear it up. But everyone had hoped that the Fifth Circuit, like the rest of the federal courts, might just follow the law that was settled. And the law that's settled within federal what a, law. What a novel concept. <laughs> I know. I know. It's so settled. This is another one of those, okay, we actually have longstanding precedent to deal with this. Yeah. Regardless, this is, you know, we're going to pretend it doesn't apply here. So the, the precedent in Indian law, which is unusual to some, but starts to make sense when you think about it in these terms, is that being an Indian, which is a legal category, is like a citizenship status. It's a political status. It is not a racial categorization. It is a political status. And and you can see in the law how ICWA talks about membership in a Native nation or eligibility for membership in a Native nation, just like all of the laws dealing with foreign national children in state courts. Very, very similar. It's not unusual. Those same foreign national children uh, demand consulate notification and intervention because you have language and cultural problems Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with child custody issues across national lines. And so what you had here was a political classification. And the law since the 1970s has been settled very, very clearly that the, the Congress is able to make laws that deal specifically with Indians Title 25 of the U.S. Code is titled Indians, for example, without it triggering concerns about it being race-based legislation that needs to be reviewed under strict scrutiny under the Constitution. And one of the things that we've seen the court seemingly take aim at next term are laws that deal with the treatment of different racial groups in, in what they're viewing as a problematic way. You know, they've taken up an affirmative action uh, case. They've taken up a Voting Rights Act, um, racial gerrymandering case. So this seems to be something that they are hyper-focused on going on to next year. So yeah. to kind of flatten the issue and refer to this as a race issue by itself does not bode well, given where the, yeah. the court seems to be headed. Is that it's right? Not at all. And, and additionally, it's federalism doctrine. It's really yeah. going for this hard states' rights vision that is even stronger than the Rehnquist court. It's its own concoction. And so, it, and, it, and it has no <laughs> limits on its, on its vision of where that will go. So that it, it, it's exactly right. So I like to call these cases for my students race-based remedial legislation cases. So we get get away from affirmative action, which sounds, it's unclear and it's it's misleading and it's pejorative in, to, in, in some circles. And so we call it race-based remedial legislation. To call it that is to put it within this bucket of doctrine where the Supreme Court is going to take aim at it as it's taken aim at race-based remedial legislation for some time. I think that's hugely problematic as a scholar of the constitution of constitutional history, I don't think that that is a good, it's not good constitutional law and nor is it good constitutional history, but that's a separate issue here than whether or not the court should apply that doctrine to again, a body of law where the Congress has been saying we can do this. The Supreme court has been saying we can do this. Um, and the States have been saying we can do this. Everyone has been saying we can do this for 200 years. So you have treaties formed with Native nations, recognizing them as 
separate political entities. And that's that's a function not of the Supreme Court. Supreme Court doesn't recognize Canada. That's the president and the Congress with treaties in, in certain senses. So the foreign affairs power, again, is nestled elsewhere. But you see the Supreme Court saying, no, this isn't about politics. Being Canadian is a racial category. Uh, so it, it, we're, we're just going to start pulling in all of these other groups and, yeah. and call them whatever we want. Because, again, that brings this whole body of law within the exclusive purview of the Supreme Court and expands its power. It's not a, it's, it's a, we're all very worried about it. It doesn't mean that the court can't find a narrow way out, but given what it's done in Castro Huerta, no one has a very positive sense of, of, of where this case may go. Although we're, you know, we're all still going to try. Well, and, and as you mentioned, it, the court has been unpredictable, so we can yeah. hope for hope, hope for a little unpredictability on that front, I guess. Um, a, it's a sad. Little, yeah, I know. I mean, it, it, so the, the, this is the part where, you know, when I teach con law to first year students and to, to upperclassmen, I, I don't like to talk about the justices necessarily in their personal capacities, because I feel like this is not the court we need to it's not going to set them up as advocates. They can't write a brief saying, Justice Tony Barrett, we know you feel this way about adoption, but you really shouldn't apply those feelings here. They can't write that brief. (laughs) They they need to think about it and somehow incorporate it into the traditional dialectics of the the way that we interact with a court, those traditional tools of history and precedent, of tradition, of legal reasoning. They need to translate that in, but you can't just write a brief saying, Justice Coney Barrett, I know you feel this way and you're the swing justice here. We know that. So can you please not apply your personal feelings here? But part of me has to turn to that given the way that the court has set itself up and the way that Coney Justice Barrett has frankly swung without articulating separately how those two cases, for example, how she can go from Isleta del Sur to Castro Huerta, to me just feels like results oriented. And so if she's results oriented, then I know where the court's going to go. And that, but it's just it's a depressing day to think that one justice's feelings about adoption because of her own personal experience will drive the future of over 500 Native nations within the United States and the future of the mitigation of American colonialism. It's shocking to me, and I, I just don't want to think that. But sadly, that's I think part of the <laughs> part of the way everyone is thinking. No, of course. And it gets back to the issue of if Congress was able to have its proper role in this conversation, it wouldn't come down to one particular human's views of a lot of different and related issues. And um, it took decades to get to ICWA. It took decades. Yeah. The Congress had hearings for four years, you know, with all sorts of people. Then the court is going to decide and, the, you know, the Congress has applied ICWA and, you know, revised it and thought about it for decades after that. And the court's just going to step in with a few briefs and just go, no, or yes. It, it feels deeply just unsettling to have that be the way our, our government functions. That can't be the structure of the Constitution, to my mind. Well, I, I hope I'm teeing up this question because well, oh. <laughs> I have a feeling that it's going to be related. But, you know, we love to, to end our episodes with either a call to action or resources where people can learn more. So 
I'm, I'm going to be a little pointed today and say, is there anything folks can do when it comes to speaking to Congress about this particular issue or in general? I, I don't mean to, to script the answer. Yes. I know that it's part of it. Yes, there is something that folks can do. And it's it's even less difficult than other areas of the law that the, that the Supreme Court is overstepping into now. So as I've described This isn't necessarily a constitutional question so far. The court's gesturing to that, but so far, the the court has been clear that the Congress can simply override it in all of these decisions. So this is an area unlike, you know, the Second Amendment, reproductive rights, where the Congress can't say, oh, we're constitutionally blocked here. You know, we can't do X or Y. Congress can do this. It can simply pass a statute to resolve and, and overrule this decision and go farther. And the politics are different here. As we've talked about, the politics are hard to predict around any country. The state of Iowa, for example, may not want this jurisdiction. And so you may have senators from red states, less of a, of a block to mm-hmm. this particular piece of legislation than you would have to questions around the Second Amendment or questions around reproductive rights. This is just harder to predict. And so what you have is an opportunity that Castro Huerta presents to send a signal to the Supreme Court that it cannot overstep its boundaries. You can essentially call the statute whatever you'd like. You could call it the, <laughs> we don't like, you know, don't overstep your power Supreme Court statute to fix Castro Huerta. But it's it's one simple statute. And even Justice Gorsuch in his dissent outlines language and the means, the amendment of this law called Public Law 280, to be able to just simply have a congressional fix, call it a Castro where to fix. But you can call also on the Supreme Court to do more to check the court, not just in this area, but generally by stripping jurisdiction of the Supreme Court over particular questions. Congress is free to do that. Congress has many more powers under the Constitution than we give it credit. And really, this is a place to move And to send a very strong signal after this last term that the Supreme Court can't just do whatever it wants. It can't just disregard history. It can't disregard the acts of of the states and the Congress of democratically elected legislatures. It has to follow its own precedent. And and we can do that here very, very easily with a Castro Huerta fix. So please contact your member of Congress. Explain this to your friends that it's not just voting. We don't even have to change the composition of these institutions. We could do this tomorrow if folks took it up and made it their issue today. Well, Professor Blackhawk, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been incredibly informative and helpful. I want to thank our listeners for finding Broken Law. Be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you missed our earlier episodes, debriefing other SCOTUS decisions from this term, including Dobbs, Carson, Kennedy, and Bruin, go back and pick up our most recent three. You can find more analysis there. If you have ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we will speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not.